If you go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1, I'd like to do very briefly a little thought on that song we just sang, because I think some of us have it uh, maybe half right when we think of the idea of God being sovereign over us. Uh, Very often we think of, rightly, we think of the fact that God's in control. If you think that, you're right. But I'd like to extend it a little bit more for you. Uh, It's more than God's in control. It's the idea that you can do something that might seem scary, that might seem out of place for you. It's not your personality. You can do that because God is sovereign. In other words, you can push the boundaries of your place of safety and security because God is the sovereign. That's one beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God. If you feel like you're an introvert, you know what? God is sovereign. Share the gospel with that coworker or friend or neighbor. Why? Because God is the sovereign. Stretch out. Do things that you would never think you would be able to do. Trust the Lord in ways that you've never done before. Why? Because he is the sovereign over us. So that's a bit of a commercial for the idea of the sovereignty. I couldn't get that out of my mind as I was singing that. For those of you who need to hear that, may the Lord bless you in that truth. We're in a study called Certainty. Uh, This is the third week, if my count is right, in the Gospel of Luke. We're thinking of the certainty of the Savior. And in Luke chapter 1, we get that because Luke has been writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. And he is writing to him in order to help him understand what had been delivered to us uh, that makes sense, that he might have a certainty, verse 4, concerning the things you've been taught. So Theophilus had been catechized, that's the word taught there, he'd been taught the life of Jesus Christ, and so he is now having a word delivered more sure. In other words, God is speaking in a particular and unique way through the writings of Luke. Luke is a doctor, and we went through that. But I can't think of a better book to go through at a time like today. Uh, Post-COVID, there was a survey done recently of 2,000 adults by Barner Research that said 74% of adults say that they want to grow spiritually. This is post-COVID, 74%. 77% said they believe in a higher power. 44% they're more open to God after the pandemic than they were before. What a great opportunity that we have. We very often look out at the world and say, people are stiff-arming God. They don't want anything to do with them. But there's something going on. And so this book called The Gospel of Luke is aiming directly at those people. Now, to be sure, they're asking questions. They are having suppositions as they come in thinking about the Lord. But nevertheless, it seems like there is something that is stirring. There's an opportunity for us. And I'm thankful for that. And so as we think of this study of the Gospel of Luke, he is writing after a period of time from the beginning of the life of Christ. In other words, uh, the time before his writing, there was silence. We spoke about that, but it's important for you to know that today is going to be dripping with historical information to set up our understanding of the Gospel of Luke. It's very, very important. But for 400 years since the book of Malachi was written, since the prophet 
wrote that book, 400 silent years. God speaks when he has something to say. And if we think about that, for 400 years he hasn't said a peep. Those of you who are history buffs of America, uh, how long, see if you can do a little test, how long has America been a nation? If you know the answer, yell it out. Ah, I think somebody got it over here. 246 years. 246 years. So the text that we're going to look at today and the things that are happening... 400 years previous, nothing. You need to think about that. Longer than the nation has been around that you live in, God has been silent. And God speaks at particular times through particular peoples, and he does miracles to authenticate what he's about to do. So I'm just going to give you an overview to set up our time this morning. In the Old Testament, there are clusters of miracles that sometimes when we read, we think they're happening all the time. They're not. Matter of fact, in the life of Abram, according to the book by Michael Aubrey, Miracles of the Bible, there were zero miracles when Abram was called. Zero. There were 22 miracles during the time of Moses and the Israelites coming out of Egypt. 22. It was like a a bomb went off when it came to miracles. Joshua only had three recorded miracles. Now remember, this is the people of Israel going into the promised land, only three recorded miracles. Then we come to Elijah, and this is in 870 to 850 BC. There's seven miracles, a unique cluster. Then on the heels of Elisha, there's Elisha, 16 miracles. If you remember the story, he asked for double, we get 16 miracles. But other than that, we don't have another cluster. Matter of fact, Daniel, there's two recorded miracles in 604 to 535. Matter of fact, the last miracle that occurred before the life of Christ was over 800 years prior. When we think of the last angelic visitation, over 500 years, that was in the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. And the last message from God was over 400 years. So the question would make a lot of sense, or the observation would make a lot of sense. Where does God start with the story? When God has something to say, where does God begin? It tells you an awful lot about who God is, and it also tells you how serious God is, however he starts. Now, last time we were here... We looked at verses 5 through 7, and specifically the people involved, verses 5 and 6. The people involved. So as he's starting, where does he start off in the significance of this? The people involved, he starts off, we said last time, and give me a little bit of flex here, a little bit of a longer introduction this morning. He starts with, in the days of Herod, king of Judah. We said that Herod started ruling in 34 BC, and he ruled for 37 years. Matter of fact, he was called the king of Judah in 34 BC by the Roman Senate. We said that Herod was like this uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, He was considered effectively, I would call him, a benevolent monster. Sometimes he could be very compassionate, but the majority of his life he was a cruel individual. Matter of fact, we said that 
At the time of his death, he feared that people would be so grateful that he was gone that no one would mourn in Israel. So he had an edict sent out and gathered the nobles up and the people of significance in the country. And the, the edict was this, is that he was uh, dying, that they would be gathered together and they would be slaughtered. Why? Because he wanted somebody crying in Israel. That tells you everything you, know, you need to know about Herod. He wanted people mourning. If not for him, they just wanted the fake mourning of people that had been lost. But then notice the contrast. We go from the Herod, the king of Judah, and it says there was a priest named Zechariah. So you've got Herod, this king of Judah, known as Herod the Great, and then you have this turn of phrase, there was a priest, this anonymous guy. Everybody would have known Herod. Nobody would have known Zechariah. Notice the change there. The people involved. Almost written in a way poetically that the people you think that God would work through, the muckety-mucks, the Herod the Greats. No. He takes somebody, a no-name. Now, Zechariah is not mentioned of a city. It's a common name. He was one of a group of priests between sixteen and 18,000 priests that he would be along to that group. A division of Abijah. He was to serve two different weeks every year up at the temple. He had a wife from the daughter of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, which means my God is faithful. And so these were serious people. These are people that love the Lord. Matter of fact, it says there they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. You would think that people like this, living the way they did, that they would have easy street that their lives would be great. We kind of have that thought, don't we? The people who love God, God showers blessing on them. The people that don't love God get kicked in the teeth. Yes, I used to think that. I remember thinking before I'd play a basketball game in middle school, I remember thinking that uh, as I was approaching the foul line and the game was on the line, I remember praying, God help me. And I would start remembering all the bad things I've done. And when I would shoot that shot, and on the occasion I would miss, didn't miss much, people. I would think God's after me. Because I've done wrong. You would naturally think that, wouldn't you? When you look at their life, they had no child. It says in verse 7, this is the, the pain they felt. In verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, when we think of uh, the idea of not having kids, um, it's terrible. And I I grieve with anybody who finds yourself in that situation. Um, And the Lord has a purpose. But back in this day, it wasn't merely God has a purpose. It was more the fact that God has a point. That you've done something wrong. Matter of fact, it was common knowledge back then that... uh, They would talk amongst themselves when somebody didn't have a child. It's because they had sinned some way against God. And yet, they're living this life of righteousness. In other words, they're seeking to please the Lord and they have no child. Think about the pain that that must have been. And when we says they were advanced in years, that word advanced has the connotation of at least 60 years old. Could be 70. 
So not only do they not have kids, but think of all of the years that they didn't have kids. So that when people that were their neighbors had kids, they didn't. And when the, the children of the neighbors had kids, they didn't. When they went to an event, they were introduced. And as they passed the people, as they entered into the place where the celebration was, certainly their whispers, they have no kids. Oh, I wonder what they did. See, kids were a heritage from the Lord. If you didn't have kids, you were seen as something other than blessed. That's the pain they felt. Now, this leads us in our passage for today to this chosen place. The chosen place, because that's the backstory. And now we have to think about this chosen place. Before we read the scripture for this morning, I've got to do a little bit of background work to help us think about what exactly is going on. Because when we think of a place in which God would reside, we don't think about it like that today. We think of God relates to all of us individually and wherever we're at, God relates to us. While that was true back then, there was a unique epicenter for everything that they would relate to God over. It was this area of the temple. And I'm going to walk you through some pictures because I want you to see, before we read the scripture, I want you to see what was going on in some renditions, but I also want you to feel the incredible pressure that was happening and the moment in which Zechariah runs into an angelic visitor. So let's look at the first slide and we're going to blend these in so you'll be able to see this. So this is the Temple Mount. This is a reenactment. Certainly they didn't have any helicopters or anything like that back in the day. But as you look up here, look at that breaking barriers and budgets by having a pointer. So Solomon's colonnade would be right here. This is the Kidron Valley right in this area. And behind it, if you kept going down through this up, that would be the Mount of Olives. A few other things you need to know. This area right here was called the Court of the Gentiles. All around in this area. This is where Gentiles could go, non-Jewish people. But one interesting thing would happen. As you entered into this area, there would be an inscription that any Gentile who tried to make his way past this particular point, the Eastern Gate, or what's called the Beautiful Gate, If you were a Gentile, and I assume most of us are, it says that if you try to make your way inside there, you'd be killed. There's about a four and a half foot sign in Latin and in Greek that said, beware, essentially. If you go past this point, your life is forfeit. So this is where the Gentiles would hang out. This was known as Antonia Fortress. This is where the Roman garrison would be. They were stationed in Jerusalem. They were stationed on this, this temple mount so they could have quick access to the temple mount to put down any kind of riot. If you remember, Paul was accused of taking a Gentile into this area. And remember what the people did in Jerusalem. They rioted. And that's where the soldiers would have come from. That's where the garrison of soldiers would be located. Next slide. So let's zero down in on this a little bit more. When we look at this temple in this area, as you would look at it, as the sun would come up, it would glisten in gold. This top part was gold and the rest of it was done in a limestone so that it would be almost snowy white. Matter of fact, um, let me read you something where it talks about that. 
Uh, this centerpiece here would rise over 200 feet above the platform. And it was partially covered in gold. And so it had the idea of a snowy marble and of gold glittering in the sunlight, it says. Matter of fact, a writer said there was not a building in Asia nor in Rome that could rival the splendor of the temple in this day. There had not been one in ancient or modern times that would equal the beauty of this. And can you imagine as you're coming up from Jericho, as you're cresting the Mount of Olives, as you see this, it would be absolutely dazzling. Absolutely dazzling. Took over 40 years to build this. It wasn't actually completed until in the 60s A.D., So the amount of time that was spent was massive. Now you might ask yourself, well, how does this relate to, let's say, like Solomon's temple? Because that was a a grand temple, but not on the same scale. Next slide. Solomon's temple in 957 was of that size. This was Herod's temple that he had built. Massive. When you look at this as a building, you need to see it more than just a building. This was the place that the people, people of Israel, intersected their lives with the God of Israel. Show the next slide. So it's important for you to see this area right in here. There were 10 different access points to the place where God would be. So there were nine different entry points here, and then there was one right there. So 10 in total. But notice this. If you were an Israelite, If you were a Jewish person, you could not go past that gate. You could only stay in this area. You could never go past there. The only people that could go past there were the priests. A priest like Zechariah. And there came a point in time that we're going to read about that he was chosen by a specific lot. He was chosen by Lot to do something, and that was to offer the incense. Now, what's so significant about that? Well, is this would be the entry place. This would be the place in which, and I apologize, it's so small, but this would be the place in which the slaughter tables would be so that the people would bring their animals in. They would take them through here, and this is where they would be sacrificed, right here. Why would they be sacrificed? Because the people of Israel had sinned against God. And the sacrifice was meant to push off the wrath of God. Because someone had to be judged for sin. The lamb would step in, you could say, and take a penalty for the people. Then they would take right here, they would take the lamb and they would have it sacrificed. And they would put it up on the altar here and it would be consumed. The priests would go over here And that's where they would wash up to be purified before they would serve on their duty. They would meet in this area over here as a group of priests. And what they would do is they would choose that who is going to do the different functions for the day. There are four specific lots that were cast. The first one, the group of people would cleanse the altar. The first group would take from what was sacrificed the day before and they would clean off the altar. The second would be to offer the sacrifices. If you were chosen, you would be the priest that would be responsible to offer the sacrifice. The third was to offer incense. And the fourth 
was the idea of taking to burn the pieces on the sacrifice, on the altar. Now, what's significant about this is that the third lot to offer the incense was the only one that had to be picked every time. What I mean is each of the lots that were chosen, the four, could function at the morning sacrifices and the evening sacrifices. Only the third one had to be picked at the morning and the evening. In other words, only one person could do it at the individual morning or evening, two people a day. And most likely the context we find ourselves is at the end of the day, the evening sacrifices, because in verse 10, it talks about the crowds of people that were outside praying as the incense was going up. So in other words, this is a very specific chosen place. This was the place where God's presence would reside in the Holy of Holies in the back here. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. So as the priests would come here, only one priest at this specific time of day, evening, would go into the holy place right in here. First outer chamber, never into the back chamber. The back chamber was reserved for only one person, the high priest, and only once a year. He would represent the sins of the nation. The priests are representing the sins of the people. And the people would bring the sacrifice to the priests. Now, it's important to understand. The temple was the place in which the visible representation of God's presence lay. And the priests were the ones that interceded for the people in creating a sacrifice, bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. Other than that, you did not come to the Lord in these days. You had to go through an intermediary, which was the priest. Now, how would they choose the priest for the different lots? Interesting almost like picking a game of kickball in the playground. The priests would stand around. Those who served for that week would have come to Jerusalem from all over Israel, and they would stand there. And when they got together, one priest would take off his hat. That would be considered the captain of the priest. It's not necessarily that he was. Most likely he was a mature, older individual. He would take off his hat. And then all of the priests would count off. Some say that they would actually, on their fingers, they would count or have a number. Because it was illegal to count people, they would just count off. He had taken off his hat, symbolic of the fact that he is going to then say a number. After each of them had a number in their head, as they had kind of counted off, in their mind, after they were done, he would say a number And that was the person chosen for the first lot to to do, as I said, cleanse the altar. The second would be to offer the sacrifice. The third would be to offer incense. And the fourth would be to um, burn the pieces of the sacrifice on the altar. So notice this. Why do I go into all this? It's important to set the table. God hasn't spoken in 400 years. And these guys have been doing these sacrifices twice a day, every day, except for Sabbath. And now there comes a point that no one is expecting that God is going to start to speak. 
Do you know we have in the life of Christ over 107 miracles? Over 107. The closest, as I mentioned, 22 with Moses. Over 107 are about to explode onto Israel. And it all starts through a guy by the name of Zechariah who has never done this job before. Matter of fact, if you offered incense, that was the last time you offered incense. He's never been in the situation that you're about to read about. He's never been in the holy place. He's never been in this area. He's only seen the high priest walk past into the Holy of Holies once a year, fearing dread that he might not make it out. They had attached bells to the bottom of the high priest's garment in case if he goes into the Holy of Holies and he's struck dead, they have a rope against his leg that they could drag his body out. This is the closest that Zechariah will ever get to the presence of God. The God that he's worshipped some 60 years. And what's interesting about the altar and the incense is that what his job would entail is, is that he would take the incense, he would take coals off here, and he would take those coals and he would go into the holy place and right there to the right side of the holy place was an altar, the altar of incense. He would place the coals that he'd come off this altar onto that altar. Then he would go back and then he would get the incense that was gathered and he would take that incense and he would take it in and as he dropped the incense on the coals, what would happen? A giant plume of incense would go up. And it would fill the area. And the worshipers that were outside in this area here, they would smell it. And the Gentiles that were all gathered around here, they would smell it. And they would pray. And they would be reminded of their communion with the living God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he has chosen to have a relationship with them. And Zechariah was the chosen priest to do this mission. Can you imagine the dread? Can you imagine the the awe, the fear, the intensity? He's never been in this area before. But this is the chosen place that he's got to go. With that in mind, let's read what takes place. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 1. Now while he was serving as a priest before God and When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the uh, the Lord a people prepared. So verses 8 through 10, we've set it up for you that this is the chosen place. Now, why include this in the story? Because the temple wasn't that mere building as we've considered. And the priesthood weren't just a group of people. They represented the people before God. So the procedure would be that he would go in there, the whole multitude would be outside, and they would be praying, and he would offer this thing up. And as he's doing it, it says that he saw the angel standing next to the right side. So he had this tremendous privilege in this chosen place, but then the panic experience. Look at verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. You know, it's interesting about that. Why does he mention the right side? You know, I read things like that. I begin to think to myself, why the right side? I've studied a lot on this passage. I have no clue why the right side. I do think, though, it's there for a specific reason. I think it relates more to to the writer of the letter than the people. Meaning that Luke is very, very precisely recording the story. Remember, he'd interviewed people. How does he find out what Mary was thinking? How does he find out what the shepherds were thinking? Well, because he interviewed them. Luke must have interviewed Zechariah or someone close to him. And when he retold the story, he said, and there it was to the right of the altar. In other words, Theophilus, who is writing this to, you can be confident that he has precise details. He's not making it up. And one day it's to the right, one day it's to the left. Next day, I don't know where it is. No, to the right of the altar of incense. And so just as he is approaching this, As the angel appears to him, I don't know if it was before, I don't know if it was after. I'd like to think it's before he puts the incense there. He senses somebody else in the room. Now, there was one candelabra that would be directly behind him. So there'd be shadowy kind of uh, images. As he moves across, his shadow may have cast across some person to the right of the altar. But one thing's for sure, we don't know exactly how it played out. He began to sense there's somebody else in the room. And he noticed there was an angel and great fear fell upon him. Now why? I don't think that he recognized the angel right away. Let me tell you what I think happened. I think he was in that room and he sensed somebody who's to the right of the altar and he knows that nobody else is supposed to be in there. His natural inclination is, who else is in here? And then he realizes no one else could be in here. There's only one door in and no one came in. And then he realizes God's about to speak. He hasn't spoken in over 400 years. So that must mean God has something to say. And when he realizes an angel says fear, uh, fear is a underestimated word. The word better would be he was terrified. You hear people who talk about having visitations with angels. I was reading a story not too long ago about somebody who an angel shows up to them periodically and talks to them. You know, that's not how an angel works in the Bible. Matter of fact, if you look at different times when angels show up, whether it's Samson's father, Manoah, in Judges 3, 6, he said, we're dead. We saw an angel. In other words, when angels showed up, people often died. 
David, matter of fact, when he saw an angel in 1 Chronicles 21.30, he was terrified himself. Think about it. The king of Israel is absolutely terrified. Paul was afraid when an angel visited him in Acts 27, 23, and 24. Paul, the apostle Paul. It's understandable if an angel shows up, you'll be terrified because of the ominous sense in which that angel has, that presence that they have. If somebody tells you an angel shows up to them and begins to have a conversation, it's not an angel from God. Because if it was, they would fear for their life. As we said before, the last miracle of a prophet, Zechariah would have known because he was studied. would have been 800 years. The last angelic visitation during Zechariah was 500 years. The last message is 400 years. And now God has something to say. And what does he say? It's a dramatic answer to a longstanding prayer that he'll have a son. It says there, The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. John means God is gracious. And it says there, many will rejoice, not just you. It's not just the people who've longed for you to have a child, but he talks about there, many will rejoice and be joyful and gladness. You will have joyfulness and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. John's character in verse 15 is shown, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. John's character, what will this son be like? He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. How many people has that ever been said? Matter of fact, he's filled from the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. This has never happened before. In the history of God's dealing with his people, never has somebody been like this will have this character. Zachariah must have thought, this is incredible. That's why he is... God is gracious is John's name, which we'll talk about in the upcoming weeks. Notice in verse 16 and 17, John's career. So you have his character in verse 15. Notice his career. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Can you get a sense in which this must have been overwhelming? I've never had a child. Now I'm going to have a child. There's never been anybody who's been filled with the Holy Spirit right from the moment that they were born. And we've longed for the spirit and power of Elijah to come because that was the last two verses in the book of Malachi. That's what God foretold over 400 years prior that he is going to speak through his servant and send Elijah before he comes. And notice the last part of verse 17, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is exactly what John's message is in the gospel of John chapter one. Remember when they talked about who are you? And he claims that he is the voice of one calling in the desert, specifically in the wilderness. Isaiah 43, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the 
Lord, prepare the way for Jehovah. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. When John the Baptist, when he grows up and they ask, who are you? He says, I'm just the voice. I'm preparing the way, making straight the paths. When a king would travel through a country, they would send forth their servants. And what they would do is, this sounds mind-boggling, but this is what they would do. If there were hills that they had to go over, they would level them. If there were paths that were crooked, they would straighten them out so they could go straight and even. And the servants would go before preparing the way, the physical way for a king. John says, my role is to prepare the way for Jehovah. And when he sees Jesus in the gospel of John chapter one, who does he indicate is the way that he is preparing for? It's Jesus. And this is the very start of his life. From the very beginning, God wanted you to have certainty that what he is doing is authorized by him. He wanted you to be sure that you can trust what he has done. So it was not only was John sent, but the word was sent, Jesus Christ. As the band is coming up, it's important for you to realize that this morning. I think there's three different things that I would say about our time together as far as takeaways I'd like you to consider. In the vast expanse of the subject matter we've talked about, I think the first is this. The pain in life is proof of the love of God. Now that might sound strange to you, but if you're going through difficulty, I want you to understand something that all people go through difficulty. Pain was not meant to hold you back from God. And even in this situation where we see Zechariah, Pain prepared away. The entire sacrificial system was meant to communicate something is broken among us. And so when he chooses Zechariah, he releases him from his pain to recognize that God sent a Messiah to not merely deliver us from our personal pain, but to deliver us from the pain that happened because of the fall. You see, God brought pain into the world to help us all recognize our need for him. You could say, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob brought pain so you'd recognize your need for him. In other words, if people say to you, if God is so loving, why is there so much pain? I would actually turn the phrase, because God is so loving, there is pain. The second thing is, the difficulty in life is a seedbed for trust in God. When we look at the life of Zechariah, He didn't turn away from God. He didn't get embittered. He actually learned to trust. He didn't know exactly what was going on. And yet God was kind and gracious to choose him to be the one through whom John the Baptist would come. In other words, if you see your pain in life, it's not that God's after you. It's that God's doing something in you. And you need to fixate on the character of who God is, his love and his sovereignty. The third thing would be, that the grace of God is our reason to hope in God. He names his son, John, who we'll look at in the upcoming weeks. God is gracious. No matter what you're going through today, I hope that you see a transcendent God who is weaving a story through the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who weaves a story into the Gospels and comes and lives among us in Jesus Christ. And because he lived you can be assured that
that he is gracious to you in your life. You can trust him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you that these stories aren't merely stories, but they're rooted in historical events. And as we approach those historical events and we consider the details, it is amazing how you weave together the events and the people in such a way to make much of you that we have to come away from this thinking it is absolutely shocking how obvious you are, how you want us to know your truth, how you've done what is necessary to speak Because when you speak, you have something to say. And your final word was Jesus. And as you prepare the story, and as you prepare Theophilus to read this gospel, you are reminding us of many truths and awaking us to new ideas of how you've been kind and gracious. And we are overwhelmed at your goodness. We are struck by your kindness. We find ourselves needy of the hope that you give. So overwhelm us, impress us, change us, so that as we go out from this place, we might be so encouraged that we would tell others about you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.